Chapter 5, Part 1 of The Shades of the Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Shades of the Wilderness by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 5 The Dangerous Road. Part 1 The road led in the general direction of Lee's army and Harry knew that if he followed it long enough, he was bound to reach his commander, but the two words, long enough, might defeat everything. Undoubtedly a federal force was near, or the farmer and his wife would not be signaling from the roof of their house. A plucky couple they were, and he gave them all credit, but he was aware that while he had secured breakfast from them, they had put the wolves upon his trail. There were high hills on both the right and the left of the road, and as he galloped along he examined them through his glasses for flags answering the signal on the house. But he saw nothing, and the thickness of the forest indicated that even if the signals were made there, it was not likely he could see them. Now he wisely restrained the speed of his horse, so full of strength and spirit that it seemed willing to run on forever, and brought him down to a walk. He had an idea that he would soon be pursued, and then a fresh horse would be worth a dozen tired ones. The road continued to run between high forested hills, splendid for ambush, and Harry saw what a danger it was to not have knowledge of the country. He understood how the Union forces in the south were so often at a loss on ground that was strange to them. The road now curved a little to the left, and a few hundred yards ahead another from the east merged with it. Along this road the forest was thinner, and upon it, but some distance away, he saw bobbing heads and caps, twenty perhaps in number. He knew at once that they were the enemy. Called by the signal, and leaning forward, he spoke in the ear of his good horse. You and I haven't known each other long, he said, but we're good friends. I paid honest and sufficient money for you, when I could have ridden away on you without paying a cent. I know you have a powerful frame, and that your speed is great. I really believe that you're the fastest runner in all this part of the state. Now prove it. The horse stretched out his neck, and the road flew behind him, his body working like a mighty machine perfectly attuned, even to its minutest part. Harry's words had met a true response. He heard a cry at the crossroad, and the bobbing heads came forward much faster. Either they had seen him, or they had heard the swift beat of his horse's hooves. Loud shouts arose, but he saw the uniforms of the men, and he knew that they belonged to the northern army. He went past the junction of the roads, as if he were flying, but he was not a bit too soon, as he heard the crack of rifles and bullets struck in the earth behind him. He knew that they would follow, hang on persistently, but he had supreme confidence in the speed and strength of his horse, and youth rode triumphant. It was youth more than anything else that made him raise himself a little in the saddle, looking back to his pursuers and fling to them a long, taunting cry, just as Henry Ware more than once had taunted his Indian pursuers before disappearing in a flight that their swiftest warriors could not match. But the little band of Union troopers clung to the chase. They too had good horses, and they knew that the man before them was a southern messenger, and in those hot days of July 1863, all military messages carried on the roads north of the Potomac were important. The fate of an army or a nation might turn upon any one of them, and the lieutenant who led the little Union troop was aware of it. He was a man of intelligence, and a consuming desire to overtake the lone horseman lay a hold of him. He knew as well as any general that since Gettysburg the fate of the South was verily trembling in the balance, and the slightest weight somewhere might decide the scales. So he resolved to hang on through everything, and the chances were in his favor. 
It was his own country. The federal troops were everywhere, and any moment he might have aid in cutting off the fugitive. When Harry eased his horse's flight, he saw the troop, very distant but still pursuing, and he read the mind of the Union leader. He was saving his mounts, trailing merely in the hope that Harry would exhaust his own horse, after which he and his men would come on at great speed. Harry looked down at his horse, and he saw that he was heaving with his great effort. He knew that he made a mistake in driving him so hard at first, and with the courage of which only a young veteran would have been capable, he brought the animal almost to a walk, and resolutely kept him there while the enemy gained. When they were almost within a rifle shot, he increased his speed again, but he did not seek for the present to increase his gain. As long as their bullets could not reach him, his horse should merely go stride for stride with theirs, and when the last stretch was reached, he would send forward the brave animal at his utmost speed. His were the true racing tactics drawn from his native state. He had no doubt of his ability to leave his pursuers far behind when the time came, but his true danger was from interference. He too knew that many Union cavalry troops were abroad, and he watched on either flank for them as he rode on. At the crest of every little hill he swept the whole country, but as yet he saw nothing but peaceful farmhouses. The day was clear and bright, not so warm as its predecessors, and he calculated by the sun that he was going straight toward Lee. He knew that a great army always marched slowly, and he was able to reckon with accuracy just how far the Army of Northern Virginia had come since Gettysburg. He should reach it in the morning, with full information about the Potomac and the best place for a crossing. He arrived at the crest of a hill higher than the others, and saw the Union troop, about a quarter of a mile behind, stop beside a clump of tall trees. Their action surprised Harry, who had thought that they would never quit as long as they could find his trail. To his further surprise, he saw one of the men dismount and begin to climb the tallest of the trees. Then he brought his glasses into play. He saw the climber go up, up, until he had reached the last bough that would support him. Then he drew something out of his pocket, which he unrolled and began to wave rapidly. It was a flag, and through his powerful glasses, Harry clearly saw the stars and stripes. It was evident that they were signaling. But when one signals, one usually signals to somebody. His breath shortened for a moment. He believed that the man in the tree was talking with his flag about the fugitive. Where was the one to whom he was talking? He looked both right and left, searching the fields and forests, and saw nothing. Then, as he was sweeping his glasses again in a half curve, he caught a glimpse of something straight ahead that made the great pulse in his throat beat hard. About a mile in front of him, another man in a tree was waving a flag, and beneath the tree were horsemen. Harry knew now that the two flags were talking about the Confederate messenger between. The one behind said, Look out, he's young, riding a bay horse, and he's coming directly toward you. To which the one in the front of him replied, We're waiting. He can't escape us. There are fields with high fences on either side of the road, and if he manages to break through the fence, he's an easy capture in the soft and muddy ground there. Harry thought hard and fast while the two flags talked so contemptuously about him. The fields were unquestionably deep with mud from the heavy rains, but he must try them. He was lucky he had seen the flags while both forces were out of rifle shot. He decided for the western side, sprang from his horse, and threw down a few rails. In a half minute he was back on his horse, leapt him over the fence, and struck across the field. It had been lately plowed, and the going was uncommonly heavy. It would be just as heavy, however, for his pursuers, and his luck in seeing their signals would put him out of range before they reached the field. But it was a wide field, and his horse's feet sank so deep in the mud that he dismounted and led him. When he was two-thirds of the way across, a shout told him that the two forces had met and had discovered the ruse of the fugitive. 
It did not take much intelligence to understand what he had done, because he was yet in plain sight, and a few of the cavalrymen took pot shots at him, their bullets falling far short. Harry, in his excited condition, laughed at these attempts. Almost anything was a triumph now. He shook his fist at them and regretted that he could not send back a defiant shot. The cavalrymen conferred a little. Then one part pursued across the field, and two detachments rode along its side, one to the north and the other to the south. Harry understood. If the mud held him back sufficiently, they might pass around the field and catch him on the other side. He continued to lead his horse, encouraging him with words of entreaty and praise. Come on, he cried. You won't let a little mud bother you. You wouldn't let yourself be overtaken by a lot of half-bred horses not fit to associate with you. The brave animal responded nobly, and what had been the far edges of the field were rapidly growing nearer. Beyond it lay woods, but the flanking movement threatened. The two detachments were passing around the field on firm ground, and Harry knew that he and his good horse must hasten. He talked to him continually, boasting about him, and together they reached the fence, which he threw down in all haste. Then he led his weary horse out of the mud, sprang upon his back, and galloped into the bushes. He knew that the horses passing around the field on firm ground would be fresh, and that he must find temporary hiding at least as soon as he could. He was in deep thickets now, and he galloped on, careless how the bushes scratched him and tore his uniform. The Union cavalry would surely follow, and he wanted a little breathing time for his horse, and in eight or ten minutes he stopped in a dense undergrowth. The horse panted so hard that anyone near would have heard him, but there was no other sound in the thicket. The rest was valuable for both. Harry was able to concentrate his mind and consider while the panting of the horse gradually ceased, and he breathed with regularity. The young lieutenant patted him on the nose and whispered to him consolingly. Good old boy, he said. You brought me safely so far. I knew I could trust you. Then he stood quite still, with his hand stroking the horse's nose to keep him silent. He had heard the first sounds of search. To his right was the distant beat of hooves and men's horses. Evidently they were going to make a thorough search for him, and he decided to resume his flight, even at the risk of being heard. He led the horse again, because the forest was so dense that one could scarcely ride in it, and he thought for a while that he had thrown off the pursuit. But the voices came again, and now on his left. They had never relaxed the hunt for an instant. They had a good leader, and Harry admitted that in his place he would have done the same. The country grew rougher, being so steep and hilly that it was not easy for cultivation, and hence remained clothed in dense forest and undergrowth. Twice more Harry heard the sound of pursuing voices and hooves, and then the noise of running water came to his ears. Twenty yards further, and he came to a creek flowing between high banks, on which the forest grew so densely that the sun was scarcely able to reach the water below. The creek at first seemed to be a bar to his advance, but thinking it over, he led his horse carefully down to the stream, mounted him, and rode with the current, which was not more than a foot deep. Fortunately, the creek had a soft bottom, and there was no ringing of hooves on stones. He went slowly, lest the water splashed too much, and kept a wary watch on the banks above, which were growing higher. He did not know where the creek led, but it offered both a road and concealment, and it seemed that Providence had put it there for his especial help. He rode on the bed of the stream fully an hour, and then emerged from the hills into a level and comparatively bare country. It was a region utterly unknown to him, but with his splendid idea of direction and the sun to guide him, he knew his straight course to Lee. The country before him seemed to be given up wholly to grass, as he noticed neither corn nor wheat. He saw several farmhands, but decided to keep away from them. 
that was no country for the practice of horsemanship by a lone confederate soldier nor did he like to be the fox in a fox hunt yet the fox he was he chose a narrow road leading between cedars and when he had advanced upon it a few hundred yards he heard the sound of the trumpet behind him and at the edge of the woods that he had left and he had no doubt that they were the same men whom he had eluded in the thickets their pursuit of me is getting to be a habit he said to himself with the most intense annoyance it's a good thing my brave horsey you've had a long rest he shook up the reins and began to gallop he heard a faint shout in the distance and saw the troopers in pursuit but he did not fear them now numerous fences would prevent them from flanking him and he saw that the road led on straight and level he shook the reins again and the horse lengthened its stride he felt so exultant that he laughed it would be easy enough now to distance the union troops then the laugh died suddenly on his lips a bullet whistled so near his face that it almost took away his breath an elderly farmer standing in his own door had fired it and harry snatched one of the pistols from his own belt remembering then with rage that it could not be fired he shouted to his horse and made him run faster a bullet struck the pommel of his saddle and glanced off a boy in an orchard had fired it a load of birdshot a handful it seemed to harry flew about his ears a bent old man who ought to have been sitting on a porch in a rocking chair had discharged it from the edge of a wood a squirrel hunter on a hill took a pot shot at him and missed harry was furious with anger decidedly this was no place for a visitor from the south he did not detect the faintest sign of hospitality men and women alike seemed to dislike him a powerful virago hurled a stone at his head which would have struck him senseless had it not missed and a farmer standing by a fence had a shotgun cocked and ready to be fired as he passed but harry snatching one of his useless pistols from his belt hurled it at him with all his might it struck the man a glancing blow on the head felling him as if he had been shot and then harry thinking quickly acted with equal quickness he reined in his horse with such suddenness that he nearly shot from the saddle then he leapt down seized the shotgun from under the hands of the fallen man sprang on his horse and he was away again sending back a cry of defiance harry had never before in his life been so furious to be hunted thus by a whole countryside as if he were a mad dog was intolerable it was not only a threat to one's life but also an insult to one's dignity to be treated as an animal although he was armed now the insult continued the call of the trumpet sounded almost without ceasing and the union troopers uttered many shouts as do those who chase the fox although harry knew that their cries were intended to rouse the farmers who might head him off the chase grew hotter but he felt better with the shotgun it was a fine double-barreled weapon of the latest make and he hoped that it was loaded with buckshot he was a sharpshooter and he could give a good account to any one who came too near yet with the trumpet shrilling continually behind him the huntsmen gathered fast on either flank it was yet the day when nearly every house in america outside of town contained a rifle and bullets fired from a distance began to patter around harry and his horse the riflemen were too far away to be reached with the shotgun and it seemed inevitable to him that in time a bullet would strike him he was truly the fox and he knew that nothing could save him but forest it was in his favor that the country was so broken and wooded so heavily and fixing his eyes on trees a half mile ahead he raced for them if none of this yelling pack dragged him down he felt sure he might escape again in the forest the trees swiftly became nearer but the shots on either flank increased more than ever he felt like the fox with the hounds all about him and just one slender chance to reach the burrow ahead he felt his horse shake 
and he knew that he had been hit. Yet the brave animal ran on as well as ever, despite the triumphant shout behind, which showed that he must be leaving a trail of blood. But the woods, thick and inviting, were near, and he believed that he would reach them. The horse shook again, much more violently than before, then fell to his knees. Harry leapt off, still clutching the shotgun, just as the brave animal fell over on his side and began to breathe out his life. Harry again heard the shout of triumph, but he was the one who never gave up. He alighted easily on his feet. The trees were not more than fifteen yards away, and he disappeared among them as bullets clipped bark and twigs about him. He breathed a deep sigh of thankfulness when he entered the forest. It was so dense, and there was so much undergrowth, that the horsemen could not follow him there. If they came on foot and spread out as they must to hunt him, he had the double-barreled shotgun, and it was a deadly weapon. The fox had suddenly become the panther, alert, powerful, armed with claws that killed. End of chapter 5, part 1. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado.